I'ma eat it later. 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 Welcome to the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio. We're so thrilled that you're here with us. Got a big crowd today. Mike Tier is going to join us from Pike and Western Wine Shop. He is a little remnant of our um, my relationship with Mike and Pamela over the years, forty uh, some years of being friends, and he's got. That's where I met my wife. Was that uh, she was working retail at the Pike and Western Wine Shop in the Pike Place Market. Uh, some uh, nineteen eighty. Thank you very much. Uh, you're listening to us on Cairo. We're here at the Hot Stove, which is uh, located on the second floor of the beautiful Hotel Andra. We're thrilled to be part of the, the scene here. People take staycations here. It's been super busy summer. We invite you to join us for breakfast. Everyone just got their blueberry muffin. Uh, it is a delicious little start to the day. It goes along with a full breakfast and hot coffee. So if you want to buy a ticket, go to hotstovesociety.com. Or you can uh, sign up and subscribe uh, at Tom Douglas & Co. for our YouTube channel. Doesn't cost you a penny to subscribe. It costs you 25 bucks to come here and have breakfast, which is a value, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> uh, coming up, classes here at the hot stove, a paella party, Friday, September the 8th. Have you ever made paella, chef? Yes, but never here, for the, uh, no, never here at the hot stove. Yeah. Uh, when we do this and when I'm the instructor, I don't take the paella thing because I'm too impatient. I, end up, I can't see that. I always turn the fire up too high, and I want to scorch the bottom. But uh, Bridget here, Annie here, they, they just make beautiful paella here in class with everyone watching them. And uh, Saturday, September 16th, you got to start your, your time in the kitchen with some good knife skills. So we have a knife skills class on September the 16th. So we do lots of... Uh, Home classes, lots of business uh, challenges, dumpling challenges. This is a great place to bring your friends and just rent the place for lunch and have a cooking class, have food, have lunch. I think yeah, it's a used great. Used to be we could hire you, chef, to uh, come. If you, if you want to be cook or want to be chef, this is a great place to come and do this for your birthday. Just there you rent go. the place and. All right, on the show today, Stacy Fortner here is our pastry chef extraordinaire out at the Ballard Warehouse Kitchen. Uh, she's going to tell us about making summer biscuits and shortcakes. There is a, uh, she's from the Louisville area. I think her dog is named Biscuit, as a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken. By the way, it is the ugliest dog on the planet. <laughs> so it's good that her biscuits don't look like her dog. Next time you come to her house, he's probably going to bite you. <laughs> Multiple Giano d'Abruzzo. That was a hot topic here uh, coming up because everyone has gone to Europe. Everyone I know has gone to Europe this summer. And they're all coming back broke with their credit cards maxed, and they need to still want to drink wine from where they traveled. So what are some cheap values throughout Europe? Mike Inexpensive, Tier's, not cheap. Yeah, exactly that. Uh, Mike Tier is going to tell us. Uh, Lindsay Funston from The Kitchen, which is a blog, a kind of a foodie website, will join us to talk about storing tomatoes. We've got two tomato segments today because we are at the peak of the season. That's right. One is with Coke Farms, who's an organics uh, grower. Uh, from Charlie's, and then the other one is Lindsay, who I thought her article was interesting about how to store tomatoes. You know, we've talked about don't put it in the fridge, put them on the counter, put them in a brown bag. Uh, she's got all the real answers because she's done the research. You know what? We need experts. That's good. Food in the in the news: salty chopsticks, caterpillar smuggling, and O. Distilton. You're going to like that one, aren't you? You know, I, I always, when I made my line of perfume when I was at Lule, uh-huh. I swear I was going to make a, a line of perfume. That one was going to be for men. It was going to be called Eau de Foie Gras. And uh-huh. one for ladies called Eau de Truffe. How would that go? 
I don't think the ladies would appreciate smelling like a stinky truffle. Well, the men would appreciate the willing yes, smelling yes, like a truffle. Exactly. All right, uh, the espresso martini is making a comeback over at the Carlisle Room, where we get a lot of Gen Xers going to the Paramount Theater. They're like, we can't keep our, our Mr. Coffee in, in stock. I can understand that. That's a good, so that's a good cocktail come when say, it's done well. I mean, coffee drinks were really popular when I moved to Seattle in 77, yeah. being the coffee nudge, being the right. number one selling coffee drink. More than Irish coffee, more than everything. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the resurgence of coffee drinks. And, of course, we're going to wrap up the show with our Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge. Super exciting. Chef, what is your taste of the week? Well, my taste of the week was a wonderful Greek dinner a couple nights ago at Usuri, uh, Omega Usuri on uh, Capitol Hill. It's been a while for me. Uh, I haven't, you know, I hadn't been in since pre-COVID, you know. So it was a long time ago, and uh, Thomas Sukakos, the owner, was there. He's on the line. Really? You know, like many, many of us, so I mean, I'm not yeah. doing this anymore because of my illness, but many of us have gone back on the line and, you know, doing backward to, back to the beginning because of what happened. So, well, and there's just a shortage of uh, talented cooks yeah, out there. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, he was there on a wonderful dinner. I mean, if you haven't been to uh, uh, Omega Usury, it's a, it's a Greek-inspired restaurant. It's a Greek restaurant. And uh, sitting right outside, he has a little mini, uh, the, the door open, so... Kind of like sitting on the halfway on the sidewalk and halfway in the restaurant on a wonderful little warm night on Capitol Hill. Absolutely outstanding. Great wine list of Greek wine. Uh, Greek grape. Uh-huh. And I'm, I'm ashamed to say I don't remember. It was outstanding. It was delicious. Um, and then the food, wonderful whole uh, rockfish, you know, grilled and um, lots of fennel, cucumber, tzatziki, and a beautiful platter of metze, um you know, to start the meal, the, all kinds of different things from hummus to different um, appetizers, tzatziki and pita bread, beautiful, warm pita, outstanding pita bread. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so... Um, Sounds delicious. Omega, Omega Uzuri. I recommend everyone to go revisit that restaurant or visit it if you haven't. They were really busy. Awesome. Uh, my taste of the week was uh, several because it's super fun to, to do this part of my job, which is... We're developing a menu for our little wine bar that we're opening in the next couple of months called Neb. And I was making, uh, so it's fall food, so I've been playing around with fall things. I cured some butternut squash in Saba, you know, which is like an un-oaked balsamic vinegar type thing. So it's it's more blonde. And I did some uh, roasted pears with uh, dates and telegio, uh, a little uh, yesterday on evening. You know, I do these spots for evening for the last... 10, 15 years. Right. I did, uh, you know, the end of the farm season. I did a mushroom uh, uh, omelet with the farm fresh eggs and chev and mushrooms. My favorite. I even said on the show that, you know, Chef Terry would call this overcooked, but not me. He likes that runny. You, you that know, runny I, I didn't stuff. tell you this yet, but it was your birthday a week or two ago. and um, I think it's about a month now, Chef. I was at home making an omelet with a little crumbled goat cheese and some chopped chives. And I said, that's what I'm going to give Tom for his birthday. Yeah, you should have, except you should cook it. That's what I was going to do. He likes to turn them out on a plate and see the egg running out of the omelet. Mm. Mm. Yes. All right, summer biscuits or shortcakes coming up with Chef Stacy Fortner. Should we add some sweet corn to that on Abs- Cairo Radio? Stott Stove Society Show 97.3 FM. I love tomatillo, you love tomatillo, we love tomatillo, tomatillo. Taste the biscuit, taste the goodness of the biscuit. 
Taste the honey sauce. Taste the goodness of the biscuit with the honey sauce. Don't get that honey sauce on me. All right, we're back in the kitchen here at the hot stove. We got the chef in the chapeau. We've got a large audience having breakfast. Uh, I'm Tom Douglas, and uh, we've uh, been joined at the mic by Stacy Fortner, pastry chef extraordinaire over at uh, our company, and has been for how many years? I think four, except, 14, except for a little interruption, 14, almost fifteen, almost fifteen years with a little COVID interruption. As um, as it interrupted. it was barely a vacation, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> it interrupted so many lives, Chef Stacy. It is. Peak time for shortcakes and shortbreads and biscuits and all of that that goes on in the summertime with all the best the best berries, peaches. We're picking. We just picked pickled pepper. We just picked the last of our plums. Uh, there's just so much going on right now before we get to apples and pears. And so I thought we would just talk about how to kind of finish with a flourish here in the pastry kitchen. One of the reasons I thought about last week is that we made corn shortbreads or shortcakes for my salmon dinner last Saturday night. And just the addition of fresh corn to like a cornmeal biscuit or cornmeal shortcake was fun. People kind of flipped out over it. Like that was so freaky. But it's good. Sweet corn is sweet corn, right? So I actually use corn in quite a few pastry recipes. Do you? Yeah. Had, one of my favorite ice creams is sweet corn. Now, yeah, I've had that in our company, and I, I would never you order that again. <laughs> Tom was excited. Not. Yeah. I did not. That was not my flavor. Uh, so tell us about shortcakes and how to be successful when you're making them at home. Uh, well, the main thing is just to keep everything cold. So uh, whether it's putting your flour in the freezer and your bowl, keeping your bowl cold as well, um, but also keeping your butter cold. And the easiest way to do that, some people say to grate it and freeze it. I never do that. I would never Jackie do that. Jackie does that all the time. That's too much work. Uh, so I just cut it and you want to cut it all the same size. That way it breaks down at the same rate. Cut it, uh, ahead of time and then just wrap it back up and put it back in your refrigerator. And then I think the easiest way to keep everything cold, like I said, is just, uh, chill your bowl, freeze your flour. If you really want to get technical. Mm -hmm. And then that way it gives you a little extra time as it's mixing together because what's happening in a shortcake is you want the butter flaky and if it's too warm, it'll kind of emulsify into your butter and it won't, when the water in the butter evaporates, it creates steam and that's where you get your nice layery biscuits mm -hmm. from. So that's really is what that we're going for. Is that where you get for. tenderness from too? Because no. sometimes you get a tough biscuit. <clears throat> no, that means, uh, you know, maybe if you got... Big hands like yours. Uh -huh. Don't work it too hard. Uh -huh. So if you get a tough biscuit, that means you mixed it too long. I see. Or too much. And then usually you're, uh, so if you're cutting your shortcakes out, and then when you get to the second little bit of scraps and you're mixing those together, you'll notice those will be harder than the first time. So what mm -hmm. we'd like to do is just roll that a little thinner because it's also going to uh, puff up a little bit more. It's more layered with the butter. Can I say one thing here? What's that? Without offending you. My accent? This, this, uh, <laughs> it's Louisville, this idea by that way. you have to use a cutter to get your biscuits instead of just putting a blob on the table and using a knife, knife and having a nice rustic wedge like you would a scone or, or some sort of free-form biscuit so you don't have that second roll, I don't understand why it's not more popular. Well, and I, I know mean, you're a pastry chef and you like everything measured. I, I watch you in the kitchen with rulers and, you know, all kinds of nonsense there. Uh, Tom, uh, this is how you save money. What? Hire her. Well. Save, having a ruler in the kitchen? 
No, I understand, it but helps. I'm just saying. So you can do it that way. Yeah. You can I know I way. can. I do. <laughs> but you know, one thing I would caution against: if you're having it in a big ball like that, make uh-huh. sure it's evenly Level, thin yeah. all the way across. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people might have the middle thicker. So by the time the center is either going to be raw and the edges will be a little too crispy, uh-huh. which so is which is for me caution. the biggest problem I have with scones. Ninety percent of the time, it's never baked enough. That's the problem with scones: is many people form them whatever. And then exactly like that. It's not baked evenly. And don't forget to get that steam, too. You also need to bake them at a really high temperature. Uh-huh. So you're looking at, in a home oven, 400, 425. No? Uh, if you have it, great. But if you don't, just go a little bit higher temperature. Uh-huh. I Some think people are scared to go that high, but I would say at least 400 on a biscuit or a scone. Right. And uh, just to be clear, a biscuit or a shortcake or a scone should have a little brown edge. It's not supposed oh, to be yeah. blonde. I love the crispy edges. Yeah. No, no, that's one of I mean, your favorite a, a, things. Any, yeah. Anything without an edge is... I mean, if you go to any pastry uh, shop in Paris, everything's... brown. Americans might think it's burnt. That's how yeah. dark brown it is. And it's not. It's delicious. It's caramelized. And, you know, another thing, you can always make a big batch ahead of time, mm-hmm. but bake them all off and then freeze them. I don't recommend freezing it raw because bacon powder uh, gets a little weird after it's been frozen and uh-huh. they won't get as much rise. So. And then how do you reheat a biscuit like that Just or a shortcake? Just thaw it out, you know, room temperature, and then same deal, reheat it Just pretty high yeah. and crispy or a toaster and oven. And then warm it up good. in a toaster oven uh-huh. at uh, like 300 degrees uh-huh. slowly. For like five minutes and uh-huh. it's done. And you know, the nice thing is they're all relatively similar. Like a shortcake you could put on top of, you know, your fruit in a casserole and now it's a, it, it's a cobbler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you had a little extra dough, you could always bake them off on the side, make uh-huh. a double batch, bake shortcakes and cobbler. You could do something like that. Well, that's that. the thing with biscuits for me. If I'm going to take the time to make biscuits, I'm putting some in the freezer. Uh, you know, in our Dahlia Bakery cookbook, we have a Southern style biscuit. And we have a fine crumb biscuit. Uh, can you explain the difference between those two and why you would choose one over the other? Mine's better than the other one, obviously. Okay. You're the southern biscuit. <laughs> uh, the other one for me, so when I first moved So to what's s- the difference? Well, to me, the other one's more like a scone. It's a little sweeter. Like a southern biscuit, you'd never put sugar in. You know? Really? No. I didn't realize Even that. though we put sugar in everything else. Yeah, no But kidding. that's the one thing where we usually That is very surprising back. to hear. And, I mean, maybe you might see a teaspoon, but usually you don't. Huh. So I think, for me, that's the main difference. And the other one, like you said, the crumb is different. It's not as flaky. It doesn't have the same kind of, like, rise to it. The main problem was when I moved to Seattle, I felt like, and you got to remember, this was, you know... 15 years plus ago, mm-hmm. we really couldn't find a good biscuit in town. And so that was like, for me, a kind of a, my, my personal mission was to create a Southern biscuit, you know, mm-hmm. at, at the bakery. And now I feel like we have a lot of good biscuit places. Yeah, in they've town, become the rage for yeah. sure. Um, and it's a good accompaniment to a savory when there is no sugar in it. So yeah. let's go back before, because we're going to run out of time. Let's go back to your Southern biscuit, a basic mm-hmm. recipe. Are mm-hmm. there any additions that you feel good about, whether it's sweet corn cheese, yeah, any I, any of that kind of thing that you like? All, all of those. I love putting cheese in there. And not just like cheddar. I like to mix it up and do like a Parmesan chive mm-hmm. biscuit. I actually just made those last week at work. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's... And then you can even take your scrap dough that's going to be a little crispier and put something more moist in there like the corn. And my favorite thing to do is take your scrap biscuit dough, roll them in flour, drop them in liquid, and then you got dumplings. And then you got soup. dumplings. And then last thing I'm going to ask, uh, shortcakes, right? Mm-hmm. You got all your berries, you got your fruit. 
Um, are you a splitter or a non-splitter? Because oh, I'm a splitter. You're a splitter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, 100 times. Because some people make them so flat that you can't split them, and you just pour everything mm-hmm. on top. And it's not for me. I like to split because I like to put the, all the juice in the middle. And, and it looks nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a little sandwich. And then toast them. Get them crispy again. Yeah, get them crispy. Absolutely. Yeah. Or just slather them with butter, put them in a fry pan, and get them crispy that way. <laughs> well, that too. So there's not quite enough butter in them already. Yeah, there's always room for that one. That one should be a All right, Stacey Fortner, thank you for giving us a little primer you, on Stacey. biscuits and shortcakes. Uh, don't forget to get out there and make a batch for you and your freezer to deal with all the beautiful fruit that's coming our way at the end of summer here. All right, Multiple Chano de Bruzzo. Did you visit when you were in Europe? Let's find out on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Taste the biscuit. Taste the goodness of the biscuit. Taste the butter spread. Taste the goodness of the biscuit with the butter spread. It's the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo. I'm Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rocher, roller chef in the hat. We've invited our good friend of the show back uh, to the house. We can't get Pamela back, so we got her husband, Mike Tier <laughs> from Pike and Western Wine Shop. It's okay to settle for second best. Ah, yeah, there you go. Uh, we miss her terribly, and I know I keep saying that, but we do. Mike, I've, I feel like every time I turn around, I'm talking to somebody else who's either went or is going to Europe this summer. And I just am imagining all these people coming back with credit cards maxed. And you know, when I first started going to Europe, what, almost 50 years ago now, part of the fun was bringing back wine with you, right? But now you don't need to. The, the, the availability is... Mike takes care of that for you. I know. The availability is much, but... People still do. But oh, yeah. yeah. But my point is that people are coming back with maxed credit cards, yet they still want to enjoy the places they visited and the wines that they had in those places. So I thought we would do a segment on inexpensive wines, like I used the Multiple Chiano Multiple D'Abruzzo mm-hmm. as an example. For you, uh, $10, $20 bottles of wine, depending on the quality level. But, uh, More like you 20 can, these days. Yeah. yeah, you can enjoy your visit to Europe on your own kitchen table. Uh, with these wines. So yeah, what, we get that all the time, almost year-round. I, you know, I was at this little bistro in Italy, and I had a wine out of a craft, and it was the best wine ever. Uh-huh. And, and it was $2. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, or I was at a Beaujolais with no label on it. Or, right. And I always said, well, it was the best wine in your life at that moment because you yeah. were sitting outside in a piazza in Italy eating delicious food. People and, give so little and, credence to that fact, what you just said. For, yo, it's like, absolutely that true. Was so good. The that setting, was, the setting. I'm a firm believer that the setting and, and environment in which you drink any wine has a huge influence. Yeah, yeah I mean, you're, when you're relaxed, you're stress free, you're not working. I mean, it's just you're in, you in the cellar in a very cool cellar with a cool winemaker, and yeah. you're in Italy, and he's making you try the least expensive wine he has, and it's the best wine you've ever had. <laughs> and well, and like, the thing about those wines is they're really fresh. I mean, those uh-huh. are the kinds of wines they don't even export. So you're getting it very fresh, very bright. It's perfect with the food. You don't have to spend a fortune on wine in Europe, or and in Europe, you could wines that are a fortune here are much less expensive in Europe. They're anyway. also very regional, which is the very thing, the thing that you don't always find here. We we work a lot with bringing everything from everywhere, but you know, you're in a small village in Italy or in France or whatever in Europe. 
you're going to find the wine they make there. Right, exactly. You know, it's like you're, exactly. you're testing everything from the area, the food the people often and the wine. aren't familiar with those wines, but right. when they have it there, they come back. And my first piece of advice is take a picture of the label. The label, yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Helps a lot. All right, Mike, I'm back. I'm broke. I want to experience what I had over there, but on a budget. What do you got for me? I was, I'm in Italy right now. And he's going to call me and I have to pay for the wine. I just went to three weeks in Italy and I'm broke. What do you got for what me? What part of Italy are you in? Uh, whatever part you have on your paper okay. there. Because <laughs> I say you're in Italy, you know how much well, wine Well, I say multiple Giano d'Abruzzo. So, um, so I based it on where I think people go the most. Okay. So Tuscany is probably number one. Mm-hmm. Tom and I love Piedmont. A lot sure. Of people go, a lot of my customers go there, but... Tuscany, you get fresh, easy-drinking Chianti in every little trattoria you go into. Um, so there's one that we sell that fits the bill. Everything's around $20 a bottle. Yeah. Small producers. Uh, it's a producer who's been in this market for a long time. Salvapiana Chianti. Sure, love it. Chianti Rufina. It's from the Rufina district, right. not the Classico district. But it's that light, fresh, young. It's a 2021, really good vintage that will come as close as it can to duplicating your experience. I highly recommend you try to duplicate your meal too, mm-hmm. and have it. Oh, know, that's make, fun! Yeah, make it make an event at home out of it. Yeah, uh, make, make some pasta, make some. Shave those white truffle right on top of your that's, pasta. Yeah. <laughs> this is budget. Oh, that's yeah, right. He's in Tuscany, not so a small yeah. truffle. <laughs> so, so things like that. So you go to you go to Tuscany. Look for Chianti's, Rosso di Montalcino's. You know, Brunellos are much more expensive. Chianti can get expensive. But there's a, a plethora of good, inexpensive wines. You and I have traveled to Piedmont a lot. Barberas and Dolcettos, sure. $20, $25. Really, really good. Okay. It's funny because I, I don't know a lot about Italian wine. I know a lot about French, but not that much about Italian. When I go to an Italian restaurant, the first wine I will go on is Montepulciano. Mm-hmm. Always. Because I feel like it's, it's a food wine to me. All you Italian know? wine is food yeah. wine. Well, no, yeah. but I feel like Montepulciano is like... To me, Montepulciano reminds me of Chinon in France about being that kind of, you know, earthy kind of wine. And, right. Absolutely, know, easy, yeah. Absolutely. Easy, All right, let's move there. Let's move to Chinon. We're, we're in western France. Well, I, I chose a Loire Valley wine. Yeah. Not a Chinon, but I, I chose one of the best values on our shelf is a wine from Bourgoy. Oh, yeah. Uh, a very uh, old-school organic producer called Domaine Guillaume. Mm-hmm. His Bourgoy Candide. Right. Very kind of rustic with great fruit, but that little bit of earthiness you're talking about. It's $22. It's classic, really classic Loire Valley. It's not yeah. moderned up. They're not trying to make it fruity and more accessible. It has that little more tension between acidity and the bell pepper and fruit. And yeah. Chinon is a lot easier to say for Americans than it is Bourgoy. Right. So well, yeah, might... we, we sell a lot of Bourgoy. Yeah. yeah, I'm a big fan. Yeah. Okay, so we were in Champagne, but now we can't afford Champagne anymore. Right. <laughs> so uh, there's so much good French <laughs> sparkling or <laughs> Italian the... Prosecco or Spanish Cava. Where are we headed there for $20 bubbles? The country doesn't matter. Um, I would look at, um, and I didn't write the name down, so I'm going to blank on the name. We just brought in a delicious Argentinian sparkling wine. Really? It's $16 a bottle. 100% Chardonnay, high-altitude uh, vineyards. Oh, wow. Uh, so nice and dry. Nice and dry and crisp. But I would look for France. Look for a Cremat de Bourgogne yeah. or a Cremat de Loire. Cremat de Bourgogne will be Chardonnay-based. Cremat de Loire will be Chenin Blanc-based. They'll mm-hmm. run you low 20s to 30, so uh-huh. much cheaper than Champagne. But the quality is better than ever these days on those wines. Okay, where else are we traveling on your list there? I wanted to include um, 
You have to mention Beaujolais. Of course. I think, because if you go to Paris, for example, which doesn't have its own wine per se, if you go to a wine bar there, like if you go to Lake Caviste here, they specialize in Beaujolais. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of the, the Parisian uh, wine bars do. So they specialize the, in a particular area. They, well, the, Beaujolais, Loire, you know, kind of those country wines right. that are affordable yeah. and really distinctive. And, and let me just add why you said that La Caviste, you know, could get lost. To me, La Caviste is one of the best wine bars I've ever been to in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's Absolutely. right in our backyard right, right here on yeah. 7th Avenue. Is- I mean, in the world. Paris, bar, bar yeah. none, it's, yeah, it's yeah. fabulous. Yeah, I agree. It's yeah. all because of David's vision. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely. He does an outstanding job, and it's exactly how you want a wine bar to be. Okay, Beaujolais. Beaujolais has gotten a little more expensive if you look at the, what are called the crew Beaujolais, the, 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 the top level. But recently, we've discovered some delicious ones at 20 and under. In fact, we're going to pour one at the store tomorrow from a producer called Burgaud, B-U-R-G-A-U-D, Beaujolais Village, $18 a bottle, and it's delicious. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly the kind of thing you would have if you went into a yeah. little cafe in the Beaujolais region. Right. Yeah. Oh, actually, in a lot of parts of France. Or, or in Paris, yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. It's just it's perfect. Uh-huh. So you don't have to spend a lot of money to get really authentic French Wines that will remind you of your trip. And that's the Gamay grape, right? That's Gamay, yeah. And an $18 bottle of wine here in Seattle is a glass of wine probably for 3 euros in France in a cafe or in a bistro. Mm -hmm. 3 to 4 euros, maybe less. Things are much cheaper there. I mean, and that's why you come back and you're like, where can I get this wine? I'm like, man. But I find it remarkable that a wine can come from Beaujolais all the way to Seattle and I can put it on my shelf. For $18. That is impressive. It's really impressive. Yeah. Uh, very unusual. I call it, sort of, it reminds me of the Prince song 1999. It's like we're going backwards in time because those aren't priced that way anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. right. But you can't so, find them. By the way, great idea to buy a case of that, put it in the cellar and use it between now and Christmas because that's a perfect holiday wine to use with your Thanksgiving, you know, with the turkey. You open a couple of two or three of those bottles for the whole family oh, to be perfect, gathered perfect around the table. It's yeah. perfect. Yeah. yeah, and you buy a case, we get 15% off. It gets it down to under $16 a bottle. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, any place else that we're traveling to kind of on our broke budget here? Well, I'm going we only to, have about a I'm minute. going to mention, you said Europe, but I'm going to mention um, South America mm-hmm. because a number of my customers do go there. And there's a lot of really interesting things showing up in the market from Argentina and Chile, besides the usual Malbecs owned by French right. companies. I would advise people to look for an importer called Brazos, B-R-A-Z-O-S. It'll be on the back label. They're uh, bringing in small, mostly organic producers, generally lighter style, very quaffable wines, for great prices from 18 to $25 a bottle. And uh, I, I think they will duplicate many of what they're, – they're mostly – they've been local wines. It's only because of them we're seeing them in the United States. Uh-huh. So we have all those out at Pike and Western, or any good wine shop should have them. You know, when you read about Argentina and places like that with 100% inflation, it's like how do they, how do they even get to where they can I, send the wine out of the country? A, I don't understand. Yeah. Maybe we're paying them in dollars. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, don't, know. Know. I don't know what to do. Yeah, well, very, thanks. Uh, go down and visit Mike down at Pike and Western Wine Shop. If you haven't been to a small wine shop lately or you just shop at grocery stores or whatever, reintroduce yourself to having your own sommelier, a, a, a wine store owner that actually understands your taste, knows your taste. It's super fun to walk in and say, I'm making salmon tonight. I'm in a hurry. What should I have? And they know what you kind of like. Just like you have a fishmonger, you should have a winemonger. Yeah, there you we, go. We love that. All right. Love that. Lindsay Funston from The Kitchen. 
is going to join us about talking or storing tomatoes on Cabo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show 97. Thank you, Mike. We are back in the kitchen here at the Hot Stove Society. You know, we like to travel the world one to find you interesting tomato. guests. Huh? I need the one-ton tomato. Finish, Chef, finish. One-ton tomato. Oh, the little etch in your voice was delicious. Yes. Uh, anyway, we like to travel the world to find interesting people to join our show. And today we found Lindsay Funston. She is from the website called The Kitchen, K-I-T-C-H-N. And I was uh, drawn to the, the website because there was an article on storing tomatoes. And we had just had this conversation maybe two weeks ago with somebody from Charlie's Produce about how to store tomatoes. And I wasn't satisfied with our answers. You know, what we say as chefs is don't put them in the fridge or leave them on the counter. You know, pretty simple, simplistic. Put them in the brown bag with the banana. Yeah, it's them pretty ripen. simplistic thing. So Turn them uh, upside down. I asked Lindsay, and we've actually been following her for uh, a couple of weeks because she's been uh, out and about uh, when we wanted to get her a couple of weeks ago. So we're thrilled that she's making the time for us today. Welcome Welcome to the hot stove, Lindsay. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Happy tomato season. Absolutely. Good, warm welcome. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> uh, you know, of course, when you think of summer, you think of tomatoes. And uh, from our farm over in eastern Washington, where it's been 100 degrees this last week, they are coming on Ooh. fast and furious. And so you've got all these tomatoes, and you're not really sure what to do with them all other than the typical but sometimes you just want to keep them fresh for a while. So, Lindsay, you have some thoughts on how to keep them fresh in your kitchen properly because you've done the research. Um, yeah, I mean, we're we're in the same boat. Tomato season is fleeting and you're not we're not trying to take any chances with tomato season because no one wants a mushy, bland, flavorless tomato. So we do a very popular column on the kitchen, which is called a skills showdown, where we look at kind of the best, most viral methods for a particular kitchen skill and then see how they rank against one another. So for this particular one, we tried five methods for storing tomatoes we always keep you know the the elements the same to make sure that it's a pure test so we used on the vine beef steak tomatoes very available at, at the common supermarket they were all just starting to ripen and we let them sit for 10 days five different ways um then we looked and tasted you know for taste and texture and ripeness also mm-hmm. do you want to start going down the methods you bet So the first two methods that we looked at um, were storing the tomatoes in the fridge. And like you said, like, I feel like as a, as a tomato lover, the one kind of rule that I've always followed is like tomatoes should never be in the refrigerator. Exactly. They don't ripen anymore. They get all mushy, blah, blah, blah. That's all the mushy. They turn like kind of like white inside. Um, Like, I feel like I'm, I can tend to be a food snob about some things when it comes to like a lackluster tomato i'm like my real food snobbery comes out i don't want one um plus if you've grown it yourself and you've watched it on the vine just get to that perfect spot 
And then you do that to it. Oh my God, what a waste. You're, you're literally taking a ripe tomato and making it an out of season tomato. Right. <laughs> um, so we first tested open air refrigeration. So just like tomato going straight on a plate and just sitting in your fridge and no surprise there. It got two out of 10. It was mushy. The insides got a little like of that white discoloration. Um, the cold kills tomato flavor and texture. Um, the second method that we tried was seeing if there was any distinction between putting it in the fridge in a closed container. So the writer just took like a plastic um, airtight deli container and it a little surprising, like there was actually no noticeable difference. So I do just feel like the cold temperature of the fridge, just as a golden rule, tomato should never go there. What one thing that I mean, we would just like want to say as a caveat is if for some reason you do need to store your tomatoes in the fridge, maybe you have like fruit flies, like everybody's dealing with fruit flies right now. I feel like you still always want to bring the tomato to room temperature if you are going to like be using it in something like a caprese or BLT before you eat it. Like it will at least revive like five percent. The third method that we did was what I do, and I feel like it's just like thinking that I knew tomatoes, um, was just straight on the countertop or, you know, on your kitchen table. And I was really shocked actually to see that this scored a three out of 10. The tomato was super short lived. It got mushy in five days. Um, we always, as a room temperature tomato is still always going to beat a fridge tomato, but I was actually. I was pretty shocked to see that, like, my method is scored very poorly. <laughs> Your previous method, I trust. My previous method. My previous yeah. method. I've already adopted um, I've already adopted our new one. Okay. So then the fourth method that we did was stem side down at room temperature. So truly nothing different other than, like, grabbing your tomato, putting it stem side down, flipping it over, and then letting it sit for 10 days. And this jumped from a three- to a nine out of 10, just by doing that simple flip. Huh, I wonder why that is. Is there a scientific uh, reason? There is a little bit. I'm no scientist, but the scientific reason is that apparently any airflow around the stem will, the more oxygen that the stem area gets, the more that it can breed bacteria or the start of molds to come on. Because, I mean, that's usually where you see kind of like, the stem area gets a little murky, I feel like, uh-huh. if you leave it out for too long. Um, so just simply flipping them upside down is creating some type of barrier against oxygen. Well, that's huge. Stem. Huge. From three to nine, uh, three huge. out of ten to nine and, out of ten. And the writer apparently had, like, learned this tip growing up from farmers. I mean, I don't I don't know what her, you know, um, relationship yeah. is with them. But she was like, I had heard this. I thought it was an old wives' tale. So put it to the test. I had never heard this. I felt like a dummy. Yeah, I remember that as a child. My dad, we used to pick all the tomatoes at the end of uh-huh. the season. And I remember my dad putting it into this area where we had the cold cellar and all the tomatoes were upside down. Lovely. And okay, in your last now. method, this is the one that won the day. Da, 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 da. So this is stem side up, but you put a little piece of tape over the stem. So again, same scientific thought here. You're now just fully creating a barrier of oxygen to the stem. And this got a 10 out of 10 unchanged completely after 10 days at room temperature. Wow. So it didn't ripen. Your tomatoes. So this is why we're starting to see that in the stores. I started to see that in the, like bananas. I see that when you buy bananas, now you start to see tape around the top of the banana. Is that why? 
I yes, it has that like it has that little kind of protective film. I yeah. noticed that too. I I keep thinking we should do a story on that. That reminds me. Ah, well, there you go. Now you got it. <laughs> yeah, I no, I mean, I, I start to see that in stores now, and, and that, that makes total sense. All right. So, um, Lindsay, do you want to tell us where we can find more interesting articles that you guys have written at The Kitchen? I would love to, which is just simply going to thekitchen.com. And like you said earlier, it's The Kitchen without the E. And you can find lots of more interesting things. And I mean, I love great site. We do that sometimes where we, you know, are do the hot stove tasting panel mm-hmm. on different ingredients. I love when people are more scientific about their opinions. Correct. So thank you, Lindsay, for jumping in there with the actual real experiments yeah. on tomato yes. storage. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Great pleasure. See you soon. Up next, we got another full hour of action here at the Hot Stove Society. We're going to talk to Charlie's Produce about organic tomatoes. We're going to talk food in the news. We're surely going to have our Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge. So let's uh, hang with us on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Maybe there'd be a happy ending to the song. Like I try a tomato and realize I was wrong. No such luck. The song ends the same way it did start. We're back in the hot stove kitchen for hour number two here at the Hotel Andra, downtown Seattle. We've got a, a second hour packed with deliciousness. Uh, Charlie's Produce is going to join us. Uh, we've got Food for Thought Tasty Trivia. But first, I wanted to get to some food in the news articles that I was perusing. You know, as you know, you go down rabbit holes on the Internet and you find some very interesting topics. Chef, did you know? Have you yes. ever done that? Yes, I've, I've, I've seen some very interesting uh, stories. And I, I'm very ha- uh, happy that, you know, in the last couple of weeks, you've been getting very taken by this whole thing of like, oh, we want to tell people about these stories that are crazy on the Internet. Well, ever since Pamela left us to go save the world, I've <laughs> been doing the producer job. And so this is what I no, have to It's very yeah. fun. So food in the news. Uh, Chef, did you know that in uh, Japan, scientists have developed smart chopsticks to add salty flavor to food? Explain, please. Back in April, a team of uh, Japanese scientists revealed that they had developed a pair of chopsticks which could artificially add the taste of salt to a dish. Uh, To use the chopsticks, diners wear a wristband, like my little pride wristband here, uh, containing a mini computer... The device transmits sodium ions from the food through the chopsticks and then to the mouth where they create the salty flavor using a weak electrical current. The mission behind the electrical chopsticks is simple, to help people reduce their sodium intake without compromising on flavor. Oh, so it's not to add, it's to stop them from using it? No, it's, 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 uh, it, the electrical current adds the sensation of salt without the salt. Oh, get you. The it Japanese re- have a particular penchant for saltier ingredients and dishes like that have soy sauce, miso, and ramen, and so the utensils could become commercially successful. The researchers are still fine-tuning the chopsticks so that they don't kill you with an electrical current, but hope to launch them in the marketplace next year. In the meantime, we're going to go back to normal life where regular people know if their food is either too salty or not. Well, sometimes even just salty is not good for people that have like hypertension or yeah. And I think people. My dad know- had a salt issue forever, right? And they know that. I mean, well, it's if- hard to not eat salt. Is the point? 
And it's hard to use chopsticks. It's just the other point. like anything else. I mean, so it's if you just can't use chopsticks, you don't get the salt in. It's like perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, I got the idea, yeah. All right, a tasty snack. UK uh, border officials detained a 22-year-old man from Burkina Faso for trying to smuggle 94 kilos, or about 200 pounds, of dried caterpillars through customs. Was he, did he have a restaurant in Seattle or something? <laughs> yeah. I thought maybe he was going to buy chicken coop because they love those kind of worms. He thought it would be okay as they were for personal consumption. That's a lot of caterpillars. Don't make that sound. It's the future. This is unlike the 47-year-old from Togo uh, when it was discovered that he had 33 pounds of live fuzzy caterpillars in his suitcase. Uh, he just... He tried to eat as many as possible to show that they were harmless. He added that they were a snack that he was addicted to and he couldn't leave them behind. Well, <laughs> I got nothing to say to that except bon appétit. <laughs> Have you ever, ever eaten a caterpillar? Uh, no, but I've, I've had bugs before. I've, had, yeah, I've eaten too. bugs. And Crickets, you know grasshoppers. The, the problem is we're not, you know, talking about uh, plugging ourselves into AI. We're not yet... B- plug that way to accept eating bugs in most part, in this part of the world but i guarantee you the flavors is not something you or the texture is not something you've never heard before or had before and it's it's just a matter of closing your eyes instead of or changing your mind to a bug is a bug From is potato chips mm-hmm. to crickets i there mean are, what's the there difference there are bugs out there that are so much better than anything we eat today in terms of protein amounts and how much better for the planet it is, and how much easier it is to grow, and how much less of an impact it has. I'm not trying to push that as a restaurant, but believe me, we will get to it eventually. Otherwise, we're going to lose what we have. Did so. you ever eat at uh, Vidges up there and have the cricket bread up at Vidges in Vancouver? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And also, there is a restaurant on uh, uh, right next to Omega, I mean Omega Usery I was talking about earlier, uh-huh. called New, N-U, on Capitol Hill. I remember eating caterpillars, I mean, uh, um, bugs there, mm-hmm. um, big carapace bugs, and it was totally fine. Yeah, every market you walk to, into in Mexico City has got a, a, a basket of grasshoppers or something in there. Well, you have to be careful about not getting confused between the local uh, bugs and the bugs that are sold for consumption. Those are two different bugs. All right, and the last uh, piece of interest, interesting information that I've come across now, uh, this rang... True to me because you, in, in your last life as a chef and restaurateur, developed a line of uh, Odo. I called it Eau de Toilette. Is yeah. that, uh, was that, that is appropriate? Eau de Toilette, not Eau de... You used to say Eau de Toilette, yeah, which well, is not the same thing. I'm not very good at the French thing. Yes, and yeah. especially when it's Eau de Toilette, yeah. yeah. Eau de Toilette is um, a light perfume. It's not a perfume. It's much lighter. It doesn't stay on you. So much, it's not so. It's watered down essentially. And if you put too much on, it's not as obnoxious when you get into an elevator and everybody starts fainting around you. And so, how did you make your perfume smell good? Well, I just went to a perfumist, a perfumist, um, and um, she taught me all the different ideas of perfume she had, all the different scents, and then I played my scientist, which is right up my alley because I'm a chef, so. Who doesn't like to mix and try and okay. do all kind of things like this? And came up with one time, and then I was like, okay. It was lovely. I loved it. The bergamot was my favorite part of it. Yeah? Yeah. Well, in the, the area of Stilton, the Stilton Consortium has uh, launched a blue cheese perfume. Uh, so the question is, will it catch on? The makers of the famously smelly Stilton blue cheese have produced 
with and, and produced this with a perfumer, and they've asked a Cat uh, Dealy, one of those uh, they do online promotion influencer. They've asked Cat Dealy to promote it. Uh, the makers say that Otis Stilton recreates the earthy and fruity aroma of cheese in an eminently wearable perfume. It's a symphony. A veritable symphony of natural-based notes, including yarrow, angelica seed, clary sage, and valerienne. Well, as much as I like Stilton, it's not something I like to wear. Nigel White says uh, the, the cheese uh, has a very distinctive mellow aroma, <laughs> and our perfumer was able to capture the key essence of that scent and recreate it in what is an unusual but highly wearable perfume. It will, it, will, it will either attract or detract. <laughs> well, nothing could hurt me, so I'm going to get some for Christmas, personally. So, When we come back, Charlie's is going to be here uh, with uh, organic tomatoes. And why do we want organic? On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. I like cheese. kitchen on Cairo Radio. Everyone's got a tomato in their mouth from Coke Farm right here, uh, distributor up here by Charlie's Produce. Uh, this is our weekly Charlie's Produce cultivating fresh segment. And we've got Olivier from Coke Farm. Some people call him Oliver. I call him Olivier. Because and I call him Olivier. So that's good. Isn't that what I said? <laughs> yes. Oh, okay, good. Welcome, Oliver, to the show. Thank you. Thanks you, for having the uh, California guy today. I know. You know, we don't usually like to talk to you Californians, but... I know. Hopefully I can um, skew your opinions. Yeah, we'll, we'll do most anything for organic <laughs> produce. Tell us about, uh, you know, organic produce has become, I don't want to say the rage, because, uh, but it's certainly people are more and more willing to pay the cost of a little bit higher uh, cost of organic produce. And when I see it in the grocery stores now... The section is almost as big as regular produce section, it seems to me, at many of our grocery stores. Tell us how Coke Farm got started and your process and and uh, how you en- enlist other farmers to kind of help in the organic path that you t- you're taking. Um, Coke Farm's been certified organic since uh, 1981, so we're celebrating our 42nd and 43rd year of certified organic. Our CCOF cert is certification 001. Um, and so obviously that's something we're, we're pretty proud of, no kidding. uh, um, you know, before they were a governing body, they were nonprofit and, um, and Dale Coke had, uh, some peace in in developing it into the governing body that it is today. And and at the time we were uh, awarded that number. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Dale Coke, pioneering organic farmer, you know, um, started with a half an acre of strawberries and, you know, um, at the tail end of, of the farming time up to, you know, 500 acres and, um, specialty and, and common crops, you know, over a hundred. And, um, you know, we're in the 2.0 version of Coke, um, at this point in our career, about 17, 18 years ago, 
Um, we had this infrastructure and in-house sales, which is kind of unique for a grower to have our own national sales platform and growers started coming to us to sell their product. Fast forward 15, 16 years, and we represent over 114 growers in our region and beyond. Um, oh, wow. I didn't realize you were doing this. That. You know, for reference to the, to the growth of it, I, five, six years ago, we were representing 50 growers. Um, so the business has grown swiftly um, in that regard, and um, it just kind of happened upon us, right place, right time right location, good reputation. And, um, you know, here we are today, food hub. Some might call us a food hub, although I've been told to maybe come up with something more creative now because, um, <laughs> food hubs not necessarily associated with great success at the moment. And, um, you know, what we have going on here has been pretty successful. So Coke C O K E, just like the beverage, uh, farm, uh, Coke like the beverage. Yep. And so you help other farmers. I mean, just because you can grow tomatoes doesn't make you a good business person. So you help other farmers become more successful uh, in getting their product to market and all the certifications that you need and crop planning, you know, quantities that you guys know that the marketplace needs. That seems very much like when Terry and I were accepting young farmers at our back door at our restaurants Mm -hmm. was always the issue was that they could never kind of get over the hump of all the... Distribution. The distribution, the licensing, the name, you know, the certifications. So I think that's awesome to have a central kind of clearing area that Coke is doing to get other farmers in the pipeline. Yeah, the logistics, uh, not to name that. Also, when they're delivering to you, they're not on their farm. Right. um, Right. Which we we often see as its own issue. (laughs) But, yeah, um, you know... 10 years ago, we saw what this, this business was doing and um, the demands of the market and the needs of the growers. And um, we kind of were like, okay, we have to get a hold on this and, and really, you know, create a program to organize as best as we possibly can. And um, like managing a sports team, you're figure out who your players are, what they do the best and how they can be best utilized in that position. And that goes from region to region, season to season, and so we, we've done a really good job at that. Um, constant work in progress. It's not perfect. Right. We're dealing with growers. We're dealing with customers. Um, you know, on the you're grower dealing, side, it's you're a dealing special with language. Nature. <laughs> We're dealing with nature. Yeah. And um, our new normal is unnormal, um, you know, in regards to weather, um, what we've dealt with in the past few years. But, um, yeah, so, you know, these services um, we're that we've, you know, we're offering the growers are more out of, out of necessity, really, um, for both parties and all parties, uh, customers included. You know, one of my pet peeves with organic produce chef is when I go to the <laughs> store and I see this organic blah, 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 blah. And then it's wrapped in a plastic clamshell. Oh yeah. And Oof. it all has plastic stickers on them. And, you know, I know the stickers serve the purpose like for the UPC at the register. I, I kind of get that. Although if you talk to the, uh, compost, people here in the Northwest, the number one issue they have is the stickers sticking to the massive grinders that they have. And it messes up and the it machine. it messes everything uh, up. Oh, so, yeah. But one of the things I noticed here on this flat of organic tomatoes that uh, Charlie sent to us this week is that they're in compostable pint containers, which is so nice, and compostable uh, flat container. That is so nice. So congratulations on thinking organic all the way through the process. Work in progress. I would say 
as wholesalers, primarily, we do not get a lot of direct consumer feedback, right? Our distributors will get the feedback with his issues or they're happy about something, which you normally don't hear about something (laughs) only when there's an issue, but direct consumer feedback to Coke farm has been um, insane with this packaging. So the people want it and um, it's new and it's, it's slow to move. And I don't know that it's the, the, you know, the absolute solution for the future, but um, we've worked really hard with our partner, Sam Brilo and in Watsonville, California, who's developed this ready cycle packaging and we're pushing it as hard as we can. Um, but it, it, it's slow moving, you know, just like organic, it, organic was, you know, I hope, like Dale Coke, who now goes in Walmart and sees organic, and he's probably very happy about it at the end of his career. I'm I hope sure. at the end of mine, I can go to Walmart and everything is ready cycle. And I was part of the beginning of that. Do you awesome. think? Do you think there will ever be a day where you guys are gonna take it back, take all the containers back, and then be able to reuse them? Do you think we ever go back to that? Now you're freaking uh, them out. <laughs> I sure hope so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Olivier has been our guest from Coke Farm. Charlie's uh, cultivating fresh. You'll see their trucks going to every one of our restaurants. You can also find them in grocery stores like the Met Market, the Paul's Bowl Red Apple, Lopez Village Market, Frank's in the Pike Place Market, Ken's Markets, Hagen's, Fred Myers, Tacoma Boys, and many, 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 many more. more. Thank you. Thank you so much, Olivier. Appreciate support. Thanks for having us. All right. Pleasure. Keep the good work. Yes. Yes, sir. Up next, the Espresso Martini is making a comeback on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show 97.3 FM. Stove Kitchen at the Hotel Andra downtown Seattle. If you want a landmark, we're above Lola Restaurant, across the street from Sirius Pie and Dahlia Bakery. Uh, Asagio is down below us here. Uh, we are just in the, the heart of downtown Seattle. We've asked Leanne to join us. She is the general manager and bartender extraordinaire at the Carlisle Room up there across from the Paramount Theater, uh, named after Brandy Carlisle, my favorite singer. Uh, a couple of months back when Pam was doing the show, I said, and she was also ordering the booze here, I think, for the Hot Stove Society. She said something. I said, do you guys need any coffee liqueur because espresso martinis are hot? And she says, I would never drink an espresso martini. So she refused to put them on the menu here. And I said, well, you know, Leanne over at the Carlisle Room sells a ton of them. So many. And, she, and I, th- I was thinking to myself, well, it doesn't seem like our audience is very old over there. Because espresso martinis and coffee nudges and Irish coffees were huge in the late 70s when I was in the restaurant business back then. But they've just kind of disappeared, except for Irish coffees during, you know, that time of year. But you, I I do the booze at our restaurants and I see you keep ordering the Mr. Black coffee liqueur. So what's going on? (laughs) I don't think they ever went anywhere. I think that they've kind of just been slowly working themselves back up really yeah i mean at least for like 
My it's generation? It's Gen Xers, right? You're a Gen Xer or not? Uh, I'm a millennial. You're a millennial. Yeah, I'm a millennial. Um, but I definitely think, like, we grew up drinking, like, Jaeger bombs and vodka Red Bulls. Uh-huh. And, like, we can't drink that and anymore. I, I love when I hear... I'm glad I'm not in that you know? generation. I love when she said, we grew up yeah. drinking. Well. I'm like, <laughs> starting at five. Not in my early 20s anymore. I can't yeah. do that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think especially for us at the Carlisle, since we're across the street from the theater, people want something that's going to, like... Give them a little buzz before a show, but also keep them awake. Right. And so it's the coffee, perfect. The co- yeah. coffee combo I must helps. say, I was there the other day before Buddy Guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the two men next to us definitely ordered an espresso martini. Yeah. So, we make a lot of espresso and, martinis. And af- by the way, that was after their dinner, not before. No, no. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. Just so make sure. tell, us, tell us how to make one. I know how to make a coffee nudge, but I don't know how to make an espresso martini. Um, it's really simple. It is an, about an ounce and a half of vodka, an ounce of espresso, half an ounce of so coffee So an ounce liqueur. of real espresso. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, half an ounce of coffee liqueur, and then usually half an ounce of simple syrup. And then you just shake it and strain it into a martini glass. And I think that's how they invented those speedy drinks that you find <laughs> on the market today. A little bit of booze, a little bit of coffee. Yeah. Well, coffee liqueur, when, when we were making drinks, was always Kahlua. But now you have other options. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a big fan of Kahlua. Mm-hmm. I think that it's a little too sweet and you don't get as much like actual coffee flavor. So we use the Mr. Black's cold brew liqueur because it just tastes like straight cold brew. And so you get a little bit more of like a bitter, chocolatey espresso martini out of it rather uh-huh. than like a candy. Have you ever made it with just straight espresso? Yeah, you kind of, it's not as boozy as you would uh, maybe want it to be. Because Mr. Black's is what, 30% alcohol? Yeah, so it's, it's not high. high. Well, it's like less than, it's about the same as Kahlua. Okay. It's a little higher than Kahlua. Okay. But I mean, I'm not a huge fan of espresso martinis. How I could think- you say that? I think there's You're other... putting them back on the map. <laughs> I think there's other vehicles for coffee liqueur that I would rather drink. Uh-huh. Do say, do say. What yeah. is it? Um, like with the Mr. Blacks, I really love it as what we would call an M&M, which is just a shot with two liquors that start with M. So like Mr. Black's and Mezcal, for example, ah. is delicious. Or <laughs> smoky, Mr. Black's smoky and... Smoky coffee. I, yeah. see how, I see how you think. <laughs> Booze first. Right? Or Mr. Black's and like Montenegro kind of uh-huh. tastes like a chocolate covered orange, uh. which is delicious. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah I can see yeah. that. I love, I love the way she thinks, though. Booze first. I like that. Uh-huh. I mean, that's the purpose of a cocktail. If you're going to do a cocktail, you're not here for the fruit, right? Or the salad. You're here for the actual so, cocktail. <laughs> what other coffee drinks are people buying? I, I bet you haven't had a coffee nudge ordered in your lifetime. You would be surprised. Really? Yes. those were like the hottest drink in the late <laughs> 70s when I was at Boondocks on Broadway or, or you know, other restaurants around town. Those were the hot drinks. Like of course, Irish I was only 19. Coffee nudge, is it like Irish coffee? Oh, Irish coffee has never gone away, really, especially during March. But uh, What's a coffee nudge? It's brandy, creme de cacao... Whipped cream, coffee. Oh, yeah. Okay, I see. Yeah. Same principle idea. Yeah. I have to look up the recipe every time. Oh, do you? People order it once in a while, and I'm always like, I, I know it has coffee in it uh-huh. and chocolate. What about <laughs> black Russians or white Russians? White Russians are cream and vodka, right? Black yeah. Russians are coffee liqueur, cream, and vodka. Is that, uh, which- black Russian doesn't have any cream in it. Okay. Yeah. So it's just Kahlua and vodka. Mm-hmm. We get those occasionally. I feel like those had their heyday, like <laughs> when the Big Lebowski was big, and right. now it's a little bit like 
People don't necessarily want to drink milk and liquor, uh-huh. which I don't blame them. <laughs> but, uh, but they'll drink, uh, well, I guess it's not, there's nothing natural in it. Uh, Bailey's Irish cream or things. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, um, we've made like several different coffee variation cocktails for the menu that always do really well, but never as well as just a regular old espresso martini. Uh-huh. See, one cocktail I like to make for me is affogato, which is basically vanilla ice cream, a shot of espresso, and then I put grappa on top of that. Oh, grappa you, or real art. grappa? Yeah, yeah, I know grappa. I, th- and I think of you going the French version. The- well, eau de vie is the other French version, yeah. but I do have some grappa in my bar as well. And uh, I tell you one thing: this is delicious. Sounds delicious because he makes the affogato. I like a good affogato if it's done right, and not too much ice cream. You know, just the right amount to go with the espresso shot. But then a good drop of grappa on top of that, that would wake up a dead person. (laughs) At the Carlisle, we do espresso martini off and gatos because we just figured, why not just embrace it? Yeah, why not? It's what people want. Uh, See, I think think that that would be more my cup of tea, yeah. Not really a tea, but yes. You know, we're uh, on the new Neb menu, we have a little... uh, Antipasti menu, a little Negroni menu, and a little Vino menu. And we were talking the other day about the Negroni Jello that you made <laughs> at the Carlisle as possibly being one of our desserts. One of my favorite weird experiments that we've ever yeah. done. Yeah, Super tell me about fun. that. Um, we were really inspired by like retro desserts, and I was like, "What's more retro than Jello?" But how do we make Nothing a Jello is. dessert that's right. cool? Mm. Um, so I made a Negroni Jello, and originally I wanted to do like little canned mandarin oranges floating in it. I think I did. I put the kibosh on that. I think you did. Yeah. <laughs> um, Why did you do that? Yeah, I'm a jerk. Well, you should try it. I think it'd be. I think hot. it'd be really fun. I think so it would Negroni be is gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth. Sweet vermouth. Yeah. yeah, and then to make the Jello, we do have to add like quite a bit of simple syrup, like sugar water, to uh-huh. it to just make it palatable as a Jello, and then we top it with a sweet vermouth whipped cream and grated orange, and it's uh-huh. delicious. That's why we don't use canned things. <laughs> there's better options. Well, you can candy your own orange and put that in there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's what she did. But you know, you're talking about jello now, which is like, uh, you know, you got to keep which things what? in perspective. What's the matter with gelatin? The French Nothing. use it all the time on pate and sure. all kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No, it's good. I made uh, on uh, uh, Moscato, de Asto, Moscato de Asti gelatina for uh, my pate over at the new place. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Espresso martinis. You're not going to find Leanne having one at the bar, but you're going to find <laughs> everyone else having one at the bar. Uh, I buy now about a case every two weeks of Mr. Black. Oh, my God. Uh, for Leanne. And uh, who knew that the Gen Xers were going to come back around the oval, the track oval. and, and They're show not the for... only one. I mean, the people I saw when I was there were not Gen Xers. <laughs> they were older than me. Yeah. The other the thing same. I remember from that era was Sambuca with espresso beans in it. That was like the mm-hmm. big thing. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I found look, at, I, look at her. She's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? We don't carry Sambuca, Tom. I know you don't. Although I did just send you a bottle of Anastasia. Oh, good. Yes, exactly. That's been uh, Leanne Jensen, uh, general manager and bar manager at the Carlisle Room. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.
We're going to move now to our Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge right here on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show. kitchen time for our last segment of the day it's labor day weekend marks the unofficial end of summer and the official start of football tailgate season are you a tailgater uh me neither thank really. you chef rub with love can help you with both by adding a wide range of flavors to your event you can find rub with love products at fine retailers like met market stores including the brand new one that just opened up on in crown hill area uh, Thriftways, PCCs, QFCs, so many places uh, for Rub With Love. 5,000 retailers around the country. Or just go online. Your choice. Yeah. TomDouglas.com. There you are. Uh, let's play. So the idea of this game is we have two victims from the audience. <laughs> and the idea is that you each get five questions. And there are some winners and there are some losers. The losers get an L with a Sharpie on your forehead. <laughs> And the winners uh, get to have a little free stroll for three spice rubs in our gift shop here after the show. So, Allison? Yes. Are you a winner or a loser? I'm a winner. Oh, Claire? Did you see how she said that? Allison said she's going to take you down. She's going to. Uh, (laughs) Well, Chef, it looks like you only uh, have one confident challenger. I think I'm going to go, okay, your turn. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Go ahead. I'm going to Shall we get started? I'm going to show you how it's done. Sean, are we all ready for this? Okay. Okay. First question. First question. The Hunter region is famous for wine production. Where is it? Australia. You are correct, sir. It's the only place I know that would have a name like that. Uh, a tablespoon is equivalent to how many teaspoons? Five. Five. <laughs> Chef, come on. No, she's like five. I'm oh, like, no, I was saying I know. That's a big teaspoon. <laughs> no. It's a big tablespoon. It's I mean. three, Chef. You're not going to get three. out of it that way. Yep. Okay. What Why do you don't think? you guys go to the metric system once and for all so we don't have to think about this? It's so much easier. You don't have to think. Are you done whining, chef? You're, only, you're one for two. You're doing fine. I know, I know. 50-50 so far. The cultivated garden strawberry originated on which continent? Cultivated one, which is where the trick is at. I'm going to go Europe. You are correct, sir. Two for three. What's the name of the measurement that is twice the size of a wine, typical wine bottle? A magnum. Correct. Wow, he's going to be tough today, Claire and Allison, <laughs> coming in here all sort of egotistical. So far, three out of four. 
Okay, you ready, set? This yep. is going to break your heart. You're breaking my heart. You tell the me The drink Bellini was invented in which country? Oh. <laughs> it was invented in Italy and perfected in France. Oh, <laughs> that's how it unbroke your heart. All right, four for five. Four nice five. showing, chef. Nice showing. Okay, here we go. I'm setting a precedent. You can only win with five. Allison's going to go first. Let's do it. Okay. Cincinnati, huh? Yes. Cincinnati chili, huh? Yes. Chili noodles, huh? Yes. Five layers is your style? Potentially. Tell me what they are real quick. Chili, spaghetti, cheese, onion, beans. Wow. Okay, you win. <laughs> question number one. <laughs> All right, your first question. Wiener schnitzel, or as the Germans, I think, would say, or Austrians, the Wiener schnitzel, is made from a breaded cut of what meat? Pork. That is true sometimes. That is not the answer veal. on my sheet. Veal is... Yeah. No, you can do either one because we have chicken schnitzel at the Wait a minute. Room. She gets the point? She gets a full point, chef. What? Oh, thank you. She's from Ohio. I was born in Ohio. You know Oprah? Because it feels like you do right now. <laughs> Way to go, Allison. Look under your seat. Okay, this one is... Uh, this one's going to be tougher. Merlot originates from which French city? I... <laughs> Don't know. Bordeaux. Oh, Bordeaux. You should know Bordeaux. So the Indian dish Ras Malai is made from what? Ooh, you're looking at your friend here, but she's your competitor. No, now. I know. No. Yeah. <laughs> she's also my aunt. Your aunt? She's calling you an aunt? Rice. Okay. Malai, rice, and. Close, but cheese. Oh. oh. So you win. <laughs> That's what Pam right now. Doing. Right now, you're one out of three. Okay. So you're not yet winning. No. <laughs> what is the most popular donut flavor at Krispy Kreme? The most popular donut uh, at flavor. Krispy Kreme. Sometimes there's a sign outside that says "Now Hot." Glazed. Glazed. Exactly. Oh, nice. You can get a donut. Congratulations. <laughs> and uh, this is the easiest one. Oh no. Gin and vermouth are used to make what cocktail? Gin and vermouth. A martini. Sometimes a vodka and vermouth. A martini. Congratulations. Yeah, three out of five. Three out of five. (laughs) Nice job. Thank you. So now you just have to beat your aunt, Claire, (laughs) to get a free stroll through the Spice Ah. Rub shop. Okay, Claire, are you ready? I think so. Three is a number to beat. What is the main ingredient of baba ganoush? Eggplant. Nice job. What a call. She's getting it. Way Way to go. Next question. I wouldn't know this one. What is the main ingredient of Cullen Skink? C U L L E N S K I N K. Cullen Skink. Anybody in the audience know? Wow. Nobody knows. Oh. I'm going to take a guess. All right. Skunk. <laughs> That's a good idea. It's a good idea. Well, I'm going to give you a, a thumbs up for chutzpah. But it's not anywhere close to the answer. Haddock. It's a fish. Ah. Haddock. Uh, Sapporo is a beer from which country? Japan. Nice job. Two out of three. She knows. She knows. Two out of three. Yeah, she's like right in there. Okay. uh, I was taught how to make pesto, basil pesto, by Pasqualina Verde down in the Pike Place Market. She used to have a big table there. And she had some main ingredients of pesto. And she also has some cheat ingredients. So like... She would use 50% parsley to go with the basil to kind of add bitterness and because basil was more expensive. But she also used two different kinds of nuts that she said were uh, 
available to use. One was walnuts. The other is... For pesto? For pesto. For classic basil uh, pesto. Uh, hmm. Almonds. No. No. Can I, can I steal? Oh. Yes. Pine nuts. Pine nuts. All yes. right. Yeah. Now you're four out of five. Yes, indeed. Uh-oh. She just went up one. Uh-oh. No, you can't have any more mistakes if you want to... Oh. If you both want to go through the shop. All right. Stolen is from mm. which country? Um, it's, S-T-O-L-L-E-N. Stolen. It's a, it's like a, a Christmas bread. Yeah. yeah. Totally. I think Allie's going to take this for the win. No, she's already won. No, no, she's already won. (laughs) Anybody in the audience? Anybody in the audience? Germany. 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 There you go. Sort of nice job, Claire. (laughs) You get to watch Allison shop for free in the gift shop. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for playing. Good fun. Thank you. Wait, wait, wait. Tom, Tom, she still has one more question. question. Oh, do you? Yeah, she only has four. Not according to my sheet. She's got two out of four right now. All right. How many gallons are in a demijohn? <laughs> Three. I don't know. One. Oh. Turns out you still lose, Claire. <laughs> if you want to be part of the show, you can join the community on YouTube Live at Tom Douglas and Co. Or buy a ticket to join us in the studio at HotStoveSociety.com. The show is produced by the Tom Douglas team, including Liz and Sean and, and Annie and the whole team here at Hot Stove. Julie, remember... If you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening and have a fabulous weekend. And don't forget, Sean, don't call me Del Torre. If loving you was ice cream, oh, I could be.